Welcome back to the podcast. We are the Princes of Cinema. I'm your host, Phil DePiro, joined as always by co-host Tim Danaher with special guest Jonas Scravis, who is a New York comedian and writer who is a co-host of Mean Book Club, and we're thrilled to have her with us. Tonight we'll be discussing The Night of the Hunter. Scary! I'm also intrigued about Mean Book Club because... Let's you get this plug in right away. Well, Jonna doesn't seem mean. She actually seems really kind. But oh my gosh. I'm not trying to say nice things. You seem that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it, it is really hard for me to do it. What we do is we read New York Times bestsellers that we think shouldn't have been bestsellers, and we make fun of the books. Um, and I'll, it is really hard for me, and I feel like I'm often, according to the other ladies, I'm not mean enough. About the books. And I did make a New Year's resolution last year to not say anything bad about anyone unless I say it directly to their face, which made it hard (laughs) to do the cast because I didn't know these authors. I think, though, for this movie, I mean, there were some good things, too, but we should not be afraid to be a little bit mean right here. Great. Thank you for the permission. Because this is a self-described thriller. And um, (laughs) I don't know. Was it a thriller? Can Can we go there first? So... I, th- I think we should start off by uh, letting me justify the pick. The Night of the Hunter. God, We're... Please do, Bill. <laughs> okay, so what we've got here is me aiming to pick the highest rated scary movie on the list. And the list that we've been going off of is the Sight and Sound Greatest Films of All Time list. Specifically the 2012 one. And this film is number 63 in the critics poll and 26 in the director's poll. And that basically means that critics and directors voted for their favorite or, in their opinion, best films. And this came out at 26. So I was like, got to see it and going to get scared. And we brought Jonna on as a, as a friend and a horror expert. <laughs> expert is a really strong word. Watcher, I think, is a better word. Why don't, why don't we tiptoe into the... The topic, because I'm I'm not a horror fan. I guess I've I haven't seen much horror films because of my uh, sensitive nature. What's uh, <laughs> what are we going for? If somebody's directing a horror film, are they just trying to make the audience scared, or is there something deeper? Like sci-fi also weirds me out, and it's supposed to like pitch these ideas at you. I have to say that the fact that you're asking like what is a horror film going for after watching what calls itself a horror film is worrying to the movie you know (laughs) it's definitely it it the movie didn't do its job if we're all walking away saying like what is a horror but we can answer that question i think for real yeah maybe a way of uh another way of asking is jonah what do you look for in a horror film this one aside Mm -hmm. like what what do you want to get out of it i think what i really like about it is it gives me a feeling of tension and excitement and and worriedness um, and stress that's great because it's not real, you know? But Mm -hmm. I think it, like, feeds into a little bit of an adrenaline uh, thing for me. And so what I'm looking for, ideally, is that edge-of-your-seat feeling where you're completely caught up in the movie. You can't take your eyes off of it. But also you're just kind of afraid to even be in your own house. Like all your nerves are in tension. Your hearing is heightened. Your imagination is running wild. That to me is great horror. This is going to make me sound like just a big baby in front of everybody. (laughs) But I went to the theater once in Steubenville, Ohio. I think it was high school. And I saw it was a pretty packed theater. M. Night Shyamalan's The Village. And maybe that doesn't top out as like... I think I might have been there. The most thrilling movie ever. But there were two scenes where I wanted to possibly just leave the theater. I was like, I can't, I can't be in this right now. <laughs> so I've, I mean, again, that's like telling somebody who had their first sip of beer. They're just like, oh my gosh. You know, I mean, that maybe that's not real thriller. No, I, I mean, I'm, I'm jealous. Like, I look for that feeling and I don't get it very often. 
and I wish that happened more often of like I I need I want to just not be here at all this is too scary I guess that's different than a feeling though of watching a horror movie and being like I don't want to be here because this is so offensive to me which Hmm. unfortunately is another thing that can happen with horror movies you're just disturbed as a human beyond yeah uh, you're not scared you're just like disgusted and angry that someone made this I should I should uh, let the audience in on a little of the conditions. This is our first Princes of Cinema recording where we watched it all together at night and then are recording right after. So this is we're getting a real nighttime feel, which is a back you know the other side of the coin from our typical morning recording. And it's raw. Demo. I mean, I, I couldn't take notes in the dark, so I'm going to just speak off the cuff for the next while. But I mean, I'll give you my impressions of the movie right out. I have. Let's read do it. it. Should we give like a quick overview of what the plot is, and then we'll jump into how it came across to us? Okay. Yeah, it shouldn't take long. It's pretty flimsy (laughs) (laughs) basically robert mitchum's playing harry powers or harry powell in the film but this is based on a either either story either is fine and it is the story of a man who's pretending to be a preacher who has love and hate tattooed across his knuckles and he's traveling around swindling people out of money he ends up getting thrown into Moundsville Penitentiary with a man who has $10,000 stashed away. And he is able to ascertain, while the man talks in his sleep, where this money is hidden. So he seeks out and terrorizes his family, ingratiates himself to the community as this Oshucks, uh minister, marries the woman, kills her, and then chases the kids around trying to find this money, because only the kids know where this money is hidden. I know so. it's a different time, and ten thousand dollars was a lot more in nineteen fifty-five. But it's 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 like comical to me to think of someone going through this much effort for for ten thousand dollars, like chasing, murdering, yeah. uh, marrying someone, worming your way into their family, following the children for years. I thought him killing the wife too was rather abrupt because she was kind of getting in the semi-religious trance and was like in love with him but also communing with god and he just kind of kills her in bed i agree it was a bad kill it it reminded me of like playing the game mafia or werewolf and killing one of the people that's like just a villager and they kind of believe you it's like keep that one around till the end they're gonna end up being your ally right i also think playing the game well and then, I mean, it's interesting, though, like, the guy that discovers her body in the car in the lake doesn't tell anybody because he's just afraid he'll get framed. That was that was slightly interesting to me, how he's getting yeah. Uncle so-and-so getting drunk in the Uncle cabin. Birdie. Uncle Birdie. I thought that, let me, let me talk about two things I like before just ripping on this movie. <laughs> That's fair. I, I think that that was slightly interesting. The, the scene that most moved me was when the kids escape and there there's a little there's a little thrill in the air when they're like trying to like run out of the basement okay i'm not going to say it was very scary <laughs> uh-huh. that's fair when they eventually get taken in by this basically this orphanage rachel is her name when when john the boy basically is called over all the kids are sent to bed. I, I actually was kind of moved when he reaches out and touches her hand because she's sewing or whatever, doing her thing. And when he kind yeah. of like furtively reaches as a boy to touch her hand, like here's an adult I can trust. I did have a moment there. I was like, huh. She picked up the movie. I would say, what's her name? Miss Cooper. She basically takes in these wayward children and feeds them. And is and is kind of folksy about it, and it's just kind of like yeah. every irresponsible parent, you know, these birds come and rest on my strong branches. It's like, yeah, okay, whatever. I mean, let me give you this, though. I, I have a tendency to write that off, but, I mean, I was looking in family genealogy lately. On my mom's side, like my, who would this be? My great-great-grandparents met at one of these places. Like, their parents hadn't died. They were just abandoned, and they met on, like, this farm where all these kids were working in New Jersey for this Italian couple. I'm not trying to make fun of Italians. I mean, I mean it, it sounds it, like they're good people in this story. Right. Yeah. I just think it's, like, that's probably a little more of a social staple. We're just like, who's this woman? Why does she have these kids? I think it's some of that's the timeliness of 
I don't know. That's just kind of been phased out socially, so it's a little more odd mm. for us. I think so. That's a really be. good point. Yeah, I tried not to let moments like that bother me where it was like just not of our time anymore. Like the characters kept saying yonder over yonder. <laughs> um, and instead of... And you're like, this is supposed to be a thriller. Right. Quit and you're saying, saying yonder. yonder. I feel very relaxed when you say the word yonder. I will say that... So you've got like the first third of the film is the original dad he's lawless he like has this remember this swear an oath to me that you're gonna hold on to this money boy and you're gonna use it and you and your daughter or you and your sister pearl are gonna live a lavish life pearl stole the show by the way absolute star throughout the movie as we were watching bill kept popping off mute to say what a good child actress Pearl was. She got better. I think every line she got better. I was like, I'm starting to believe this girl. She was I'm, good. I'm convinced this film was shot in order and Pearl <laughs> learned her lines a little better each time they did something. She learned how to act. I looked up the actress to see what she did afterwards because she also has a really unique face. Like one of those faces mm-hmm. that's really cute on a child, but you're like, What's that going to turn into as an adult? Um, And she just became a school teacher. I think this is maybe the only thing that she acted in, which is interesting. I know you're making a larger point, Bill, but I think we cannot, we would be remiss if we didn't mention that the reason that the the criminal daddy who needs to hide his treasures tells the the son where the treasures are, where his $10,000 is, is because he says specifically, mommy can't be trusted. She has poor judgment. <laughs> there you go. So this is an adult woman that is his wife and life partner who he knows just, she doesn't, I think he says like she just doesn't have sense about these things. So instead he entrusts it to his seven, eight-year-old son. And then he and gets unfortunately, her- it pa- sort of pans out. <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> he was exactly right. She has yeah. terrible judgment. I feel like some of it was a little forced, too, in terms of you wanted to get this thriller where there's these children running from this man. And I'm I'm not trying to be just naysaying this film, but there were strong Disney vibes. I mean, a lot of Disney movies deal with orphans on the run from a bad guy. That's my I mean, point. So I just made I think my point. Yeah. I think you're right about how it was presented. But this is based on a true story. Okay. I think that there was, yeah, it was based on the true story of Harry Powers, who was hanged in 1932 for the murder of two widows and three children in Clarksburg. And he, wow. Wild. And I feel like I would like to watch the true crime documentary about that. Yeah. Rather than this movie. This is sort of a polished (laughs) version that's like a little nicer than the real story. As someone who, who suggested this, let me give a defense. So you got this. You, you got this first third of the film. You've got this man uh, worming his way into this family, and you gotta say that Mrs. Spoon, the grandma, forced the hand. She was making her fudge. She is just like convinced that a woman can't raise a child on her own, and needed this man who's like a blessing from God, and he's bringing all the like folksy hat in hand sort of Bible quote and stuff that has just wins people over immediately and he's a a handsome charmer so people go for it but you see this like menace sort of come out of him and i have to say there were some moments scenes where i was like i feel like i see the history of cinema through this like where he's standing in the bedroom holding the knife aloft and it's like the light is shining down on him and the woman is is like silhouetted laying in bed almost looks like she's in a coffin or something and then it like zooms out and you see the the archway and it looks like a church steeple and it's got this like eerie sense i'm like okay this is a great shot yeah the other the other cool thing is um the movie uses that really great powerpoint feature where um you can wipe to a new slide. They they do that in some of their shots where they take a little circle that gets smaller and smaller and smaller on the screen until it's just focused on one tiny thing. Um, so love those kinds of cool stylized shots ahead of their time, really. This is why we have PowerPoint, for sure. <laughs> you also, Bill, touched on Mrs. Spoon and her fudge, but I feel like we need to talk a little bit more about her. I'm going gonna, gonna to let you guys do this because I didn't find her interesting at all, so I'm just going to listen. Okay. 
for I a only, while. I only found two things about her interesting. Number one, is her name honestly Mrs. Spoon? Yeah, and they okay. serve ice cream and fudge. And who yeah. knows what came first? <laughs> it is like a game of Clue. Yeah, Mrs. Spoon in the kitchen with the spoon, I guess. The problem is I'm, I think there's more to her character. I think that's a made-up name. I think she's a liar. And that when someone asked her her name, she just reached for the thing she was holding. And she said, I'm Mrs. Spoon. And That's I think there's a true. dark past. Other than the name, my other reasoning is, is because what she was making was not fudge. I know this because I have made fudge in my life. It's a fun thing to cook. And whatever she was boiling in that pot, it was not fudge. Wow. I've never seen that kind mm. of consistency of a candy that is in the process of being made. You heard it here first, folks. There's Mrs. something Spoon in that was pot. Not making, was not making fudge. These are new revelations, and she does cry out for murder in the end. She's in the front of the courtroom wanting the guy <laughs> to hang. It is interesting to see the full circle. The people who got most duped by this guy are the most bloodthirsty in the end. Just full mob. Yeah, they feel embarrassed or cheated or whatever, you know. Let me, yeah. ask, let me ask this, too. I, I don't mean to press the issue, but... You have some autobiographical connection to the uh, place where this story happened, Bill. Do you want to... Because you almost, you almost never mm-hmm. mentioned this. My dad and his family are from West Virginia. It's interesting. They're Hold mentioning Parkersburg. On. Yeah, they're this, mentioning Parkersburg. And this I'm like, is never emphasized. Where my Aunt Andrea lives? Wow. Yeah, it's, this is true. And I, and I would say that this is 100% accurate to what life in West Virginia is like. <laughs> Presently, without yeah, change. In, in present day. Yeah, I mean, you think about Uncle Bertie, who's just, like, living on a boat, talking to one picture of his wife, drinking, fishing, singing, playing his songs about himself. <laughs> it's about what it's like. I it was, was the old-timey version of the Instagram feed that's just pictures of yourself. That's Uncle Bertie with his songs. That's exactly right. I was just in West Virginia, actually, on a little camping trip. What would that be, two weeks ago? It's, it's, it's hard to compare because this was all in black and white and what I saw was in color, you know. <laughs> Actually, it's funny. that, that it, it brings up a meditation. Maybe this connects, maybe it doesn't. I'd imagine, even though this is set in West Virginia, this kind of has a broad reflection of, like, 1950s cinema. Maybe not, like, Manhattan as such, but outside of urban mm-hmm. centers. Whereas, like, I had gone to West Virginia for this camping trip two weeks ago and there so even though you have local rural places you find all the trends i mean you got you got your hippie community you got your outdoor people i mean it's true there were more people wearing mountaineer sweatshirts and we're getting all revved up to go rafting (laughs) but i mean it is it is funny in a way that i'm not sure local place completely binds it to like this is a specific West Virginia movie. I guess it reflects an, an era in America where there's sort of like human nature is still unhinged, but everyone wants to at least put on a good appearance, you know, whether that's quoting scripture, whether that's acting in good manners. I mean, this guy, I think the reason why I hate him isn't just because he's trying to like rob and kill people. I mean, the hypocrisy isn't like deeply evil. It's just annoying. You know, this this preacher's in town and he's a murderer. It's like, like, for instance, you're you're not going to see this coming, but I'm going to go for it. Uh oh. I had some reminiscences of the movie Dennis the Menace. Have you seen that? Like the live action Dennis the Menace? Exactly. Have you seen that? Uh, Maybe. So it's a Wilson. It's a 1993 film. Mr. Wilson's involved. But the same guy uh, that played, I'm looking this up now as we go, who's the guy that played Back to the Future? Not Marty, but he yells Marty, Marty! Christopher Lloyd. Mm-hmm. He plays the villain. And he, I remember as a kid, like, again, he's like this adult villain who's like trying to rob kids. And, and, and he also has a switchblade. Same maneuver as this film. I remember him being really creepy. And I rewatched that film five years ago and he's genuinely very scary for a children's movie maybe children in the 1950s were very scared of this preacher guy but i mean i know this is top 26 i i thought christopher lloyd was a better villain and that's dennis the menace the movie 1993 
<laughs> compared to this 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 film that's a top i mean i'm not trying to just hate but i i don't know if the villain was it was more like annoying than scary you know this is time for me to say that uh and i'm gonna butcher the pronunciation because uh, we officially do not know French on this podcast, but Cahé du Cinéma selected The Night of the Hunter in 2008 as the second best film of all time. Oh my god! What? Behind Citizen Kane. Look, it's got it all. It's got West Virginia. It's got a charming lead who turns out to be wicked. You've got a weird view of sex shaming, essentially, where this guy goes and sits as a preacher in this, like... He watches, like, a scandalous dancer show, which is essentially, like, mild burlesque, and he has a knife in his pocket. And then you've got some gorgeous shots, like the murder. We haven't even talked about the wife being found by Bertie under the water in this absolutely gorgeous shot of, like, the reeds floating through the water, and she's tied down in a Model T car. <laughs> Model T car. An absolutely stunning death shot. (laughs) Stunning. I know that for the uh, Criterion Collection, Guillermo del Toro put this on his list when they, like, select it. And you can see, like, that kind of influence there. Okay, that's a good point. That was actually a cool... If I get past the kind of artifice of it, because it's easy to watch these old movies and kind of see the strings of it, the right. intention behind the shot, done as well as it could be at the time, was a really cool visual. There's also that visual of him riding because he's searching for the... Because remember they're sleeping in the barn and he's he's riding yeah. against the moonlight, which is a little creepy. Again, we get, we've seen... We've been so overly saturated with films and cool shots. We forget that some of these things are brand new. I remember watching... What was that? Some, maybe Taxi Driver or... Raging Bull or something with Robert De Niro early on in black and white. And people were saying the shots were amazing. And I watched it and I was like, it looks like a black and white movie. But I think like to have the camera in the corner of a room watching this domestic dispute for people at the time, they were like, this is groundbreaking. I don't have a trained eye for that. This kind of movie makes me realize my lack. I mean, that shot like in the barn reminds me of The Searchers. Which I don't know if you guys have seen it, John Wayne like Western movie. The the iconic shot is him silhouetted within the frame of a door, so it's like a frame within a frame. So you've got that except with the boy John who's standing there and they're standing looking out at this expanse, then they have a moment of peace. But within that peaceful frame where it's just kind of like all the animals of the field are sort of watching and they just like have this sort of idyllic float down the river leading up to this moment where they sneak into the barn. And I think it's supposed to be kind of a Mary and Joseph type of thing where they're, you know, no room at the end, so they sneak into the barn. Do you think then, it, do you think it then works? You see him. Do you think it works to have, like, I guess we can be thrown off now because they're kind of these nice scenes. Like, the kids escape down the Ohio River, and there's just kind of a lot of time to yeah. breathe. It's like they're going to be okay for a while. I'm not sure if that kind of takes the foot off the gas too much it slowed it down for sure yeah but honestly it was a nice break from this guy just being like where's the money all the time i mean i don't mind a break from that but i didn't come to a scary movie to watch huckleberry finn i came for some thrills and i guess the only way i could really make that any part of that thrilling is thinking about the reality of a five-year-old and an eight-year-old rafting down a river together i guess when you really think about it that's actually really scary very dangerous yeah Yeah, just on a human level you don't want kids having to do that Mm -hmm. no supervision services mrs spoon told them to (laughs) go away i guess what makes me like contrast like we had talked before like what thrillers have i seen or what horror movies and it's very few i remembered one right now as we're talking Maybe as a comparison, have you guys seen that movie Seven? Where they because it's kind of biblical based, like this. Kevin Spacey. Yeah. I have seen it. Brad Pitt. I hadn't. I haven't seen that. I think since high school. I don't remember details, but I remember being really disturbed, especially when what is at the end is that he his wife's head it's is in, in the, the box. box. Yeah. yeah. And I just remember like. 
I guess films of today, if you want to go for the full thrill, because as B.B. King said, the thrill is gone, we're used to films, you have to do things that are like serial killers. I mean, even if you take Silence of the Lambs or Hannibal, which I've seen those two, there's sort of this, oh my gosh, what sort of unheard of things might be done? That's what kind of keeps us on the edge of our seat. I wonder if it's cultural, where the fact that there's a man who's greedy and he's threatening the lives of others is just not enough. It's like, okay, he's, he's after money. There's kind of something about us where there's a certain numbness. And I don't, I'm not trying to say that with emphasis. I'm just wondering. That's a great point. And I think the other thing is that certain things can be scary to some people, obviously, and not to others. That's not a very shocking point. But I think it is interesting here because, yeah, maybe in a way, like, one man's greediness wanting money isn't as scary to us. And maybe in part because it feels like it's a this-would-never-happen-to-me kind of scary moment or movie because Mm -hmm. of the choices that were made by the characters in the film. You can't necessarily see yourself in that situation as opposed to, like, the ones that, I think are a little bit more universally scary are random acts against you where there's nothing that the characters in this movie could have done to have avoided this or foreseen this happening. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. And I maybe should not have sold this as a horror film because it's not. Uh, I mean, Um, but it is sold as a horror film and a thriller. I mean... It's definitely sold as a thriller. It doesn't hit the mark as a horror film for me, but it also... no. Doesn't I mean, I guess if you had to put it somewhere in a box, you could say thriller. Does it outrank classics like Silence of the Lambs? No. No. That movie's scary. I, I remember being very scared. But what I would say about the few modern examples of thrillers or horrors that I've seen, there's a sort of psychological derangement that you feel spooky just getting close to certain characters. You're like, oh my gosh, this person's a monster. Is this guy a monster? I, I keep wanting to mispronounce this movie. See, I want to keep calling it Night Hunter, but I looked that up. That's actually a 2018 movie of a very similar plot, Night Hunter. Oh, really? What is this called? Night of the Hunter. Night of the oh. Hunter. Mm-hmm. It's his is night. Is this guy a monster? Yeah, it's his night. We kind of expect it. that, though, from thrillers nowadays, right? It's like you need somebody that's really monstrous. There is something twisted about this guy. I mean, one of the first scenes is him driving down the road in the car, and he's, like, talking to God. Mm -hmm. Not exactly. He's like, oh, you don't have any problem with killing. And he's basically plotting his next crime to God. And he has this weird battle of good and evil that he's going, that's going all the time. I mean, I think that there is something twisted about him. I think it's more than, I don't know, an opportunistic guy. Yeah, he's definitely twisted. He's also, I I do love the character of the religious zealot, which he kind of is, that's really a snake oil salesman. That that's a fun character and it's I mean, it's a it's a trope, but it's not that often done. I think for me he's very fallible, but not in a like fun way, in more of a like he's a very easy to defeat villain. <laughs> Despite his charisma and his charm, which I feel like the movie could have played into more, like, let's see him charming his way into situations more often, as opposed to the brute force he exerts the second two-thirds of the film, because he's not that good at the brute force attack. It's a, He's good in his approach, like, when, when the woman, Rachel, at the end is sitting with a shotgun across her lap, and I'm very glad she shoots him in the end, there was a certain mm-hmm. satisfaction. It's like, just shoot the man, somebody... But when he's sitting in the yard, you know, and just kind of singing, I was a little creeped out. I was like, this is a little insane. He's just boldly sitting in their yard outside the window, letting his presence be known. But then when he actually attacks, he just kind of pops up and she shoots him, which wasn't very scary. It was just sort of like, get him. There he is. Mm -hmm. I I feel like there was sort of he wasn't this mastermind. He was just kind of persistent. Yeah, but what if instead he had come into that scene and, you know, won Rachel over with his silver tongue? Right. Despite her maybe even already thinking she was crazy, if he could, you know, talk her into something. That that feels like a scarier villain to me than this guy that two kids defeat basically immediately. They, like, lure him into the basement, 
um, put him under a shelf and then knock the shelf over. And he like basically sees little birdies flying around his head. And in that scene was born the plot idea for Home Alone. Yes. I, I was just about to say something, which I think it's clear I enjoyed this more than the both of you. But <laughs> the this is the precursor to Home Alone and uh, devastatingly the Mary-Kate and Ashley, like it mystery series where they go around round solving and 101 dalmatians i mean the list goes on and on let me ask you this too there is kind of this ending note which they emphasize at least three times explicitly where rachel keeps talking about how children abide that Mm -hmm. that children are kind of like the pride of the human race and that's kind of delivered straight into camera at the end which i thought was an interesting Decision. They kept asking the actress not to, but they just eventually had to work with what they could get. Can we abide that? Film's expensive. I mean, Can we abide that children are... Abide. The message of... I mean, it's kind of this thing like children alone are good, because all the adults oh. either fell for this guy and now they want him lynched or they got murdered by him. I mean, what... what a, Besides her, there's no other adult that we actually get to know in the film that is admirable. It's kind of like, it's sort of this tribute to innocence, which mm. I guess I guess kind of works, but it's sort of like they escaped. Then why pay tribute to sort of, I don't know. I'm processing out loud. We This is what we're doing, right? Is this? Yeah, I yeah. think you're. I think you're onto something. Because that, w- that, w- that was like the, the, the they that was like the the song at the end. I mean, they're singing this song about the innocence of children. I wrote this down. What does the song say? Anybody have the lyrics? Um, I wrote down the other song they were singing, which was "Bringing in the sheep, we shall come rejoicing." Bringing in the sheep. That was the whole song, and they sang that song about fifty times. Yeah, everlasting arms was his haunting song that is playing which is like honestly too much of a banger to be a scary song <laughs> but the yeah that's yeah. like gospel like straight up gospel yeah so there's there were some scenes that i think that had some resonance or some certain you know clear metaphors like the owl hunting a rabbit and then miss cooper is like it's a hard world for little things Right. So this this message is recurring. And I'm looking at some of this stuff here about this, and it seems like the film's response has gone up over time, and part of it was I think a lot of kids would watch this film. And it seems like it became... It's probably one of those things you love the films of your childhood, and it was scarier when you were a kid. This is like the I'm a 90s kid of the sight and sound list for boomers though this is the boomers 90s kid and that's maybe is, that's that's maybe that's maybe why it's rounded out with with like children are going to be protected and safe because if it's a kid audience i was just i just found the lyrics the opening line actually the opening and closing song are dream little one dream which is sort of like a lullaby i guess maybe that's the point is like at the end of the day when all the scary things are done you'll be cared for and like kids can actually leave this film okay is that i didn't know that was the intended audience i'm imagining adults in the 50s checking this thing out i don't think it was the intended audience i think it's more like this would play on tv and kids would watch it and it'd be and it caught on well how many films came out in 1955 like two so i feel like if you were a kid (laughs) you probably saw those two a lot you know that's a good, yeah. yeah, who knows? I wasn't around then. Neither were my parents. I mean, that's you know, a long Quibi time ago. Quibi wasn't around at that time. We didn't have a lot of the great streaming services. There was no CISO at that time. So there really wasn't competition for the, you know, few movies. Yeah, nowhere for a creator to get good material out like Quibi or CISO. <laughs> so, Bill, let's put you on the hot seat because you, you're you the fan. Okay. Like, if, if somebody said, hey, I saw this uh, this movie, have you seen... What's it called? Night Search? <laughs> <laughs> the Night of the Hunter. Night of the Hunter. What's 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 your party remark? You know, it's kind of loud. The music's going. It's just like, yeah, I was I was thinking of watching this movie, Night at the Hunter. And you say... So, <laughs> I think it's music. a beautifully <laughs> shot film. <laughs> you know. I think it's a beautifully shot film. 
Okay. And I'm looking at this, the Cahier du Cinema ranked it the number two most beautiful film, not best film. I would say that it's a that it's only ninety minutes long. It's got a movie star villain who's hunting down some kids. There are some beautiful yeah, it's mostly like the scenes were really good. I thought the musical score was nice at some points. Like there's a fantasy component to the horror or the thriller aspects. Like some of those like pastoral elements of it where they're floating down the river, there's all like there's a bullfrog watching them and a fox. Which Sorry, I went itself. to get a drink. You said you liked it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a bullfrog. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna just trail off at the party when I say bullfrog. <laughs> Not that anybody at any party is ever going to ask. Have you <laughs> seen ask. Night of the Hunter? If so, I think you've just met your soulmate. <laughs> Why, you know yes, what? I have. The title is the scariest part of this. I agree with that. I also wrote down two lines that I really liked that were funny because I've never heard them before this, and I don't think I'll ever hear them after this. Just lines of dialogue that people said. Um, the old man, what's his name? Uncle Birdie. Uncle Birdie says at one point, a man of my age needs a little start in the morning to eat the virus. <laughs> That's what I heard. <laughs> And then at the end... Wait, is that because he's drinking whiskey or coffee? I forget which one. I think one. it's whiskey. Right, And I yeah. think he calls it snart. And I think he says it's to eat the virus. <laughs> so that's your party remark. Have you that's, seen... That's my party remark. There's Honestly, this whiskey scene. if that doesn't scene. bring you to the film, nothing will. Jonna, if we're ever allowed to have parties again, and I see you pouring whiskey, you better call it snart to start the virus. <laughs> Y'all, y'all want a little start? <laughs> it eats the virus. <laughs> this feels really apt right now for the age we're living in. <laughs> now, you, you were moved by a second one. Oh, yeah. The other one was, um, I forget who says this, but I, I think it was probably Mrs. Spoon. She says, she's not the only fish in the river shilly-shallying around. <laughs> <laughs> that was certainly Mrs. Spoon. <laughs> Steering things like you were like we were at a holy family in the hall. Someone's making like ziti, spooning out ziti. You know what I mean? That that was just like the classic church gathering. Oh yeah, a oh, yeah. picnic. While you have these Telling written out in shorthand, you should go on IMDb and add these. They got they got like a quote page per movie. You know, that's I really should. I mean, who else is going to do that? <laughs> Who's watching the movie? Who's putting in the work? You might as well make this a productive time. You That's know? a great point. And I will say I wrote them down just as I heard them. So they might not be 100% right, but they feel right in tone. You know what? We would be remiss if we didn't mention that John's dad, uh, the one who sold the $10,000, was housed in the Moundsville Penitentiary, which is currently the scariest haunted house in the Ohio Valley. Now have have you really? been there? What's the what's too the scary. story? Too scary for me. Well, it's too apparently scary. haunted for real. Yeah. And uh, if you you can go through it, and it's that giant prison that they show there, and it's no longer operational except to scare teenagers. Wow, a October. lot of a lot of aerial shots of that. A lot of aerial shots of the home and the river too. It's like they knew. I feel like Phil Valera went there. I feel like you're real real heads we we had high school friends that have done the re, you know around halloween time they would always seek these things out i've i think i at a mall at a mall parking lot um i went on one of the, you know they have like the trailer and it's a haunted house trailer it's like maybe a double wide mm-hmm. i've been on i've been in one of those but i've never done the full haunted farm haunted house mm-hmm. i'm not that kind of guy now now jonna besides watching films for thrill-seeking. I mean, where do haunted houses, do they have a place in your life? I, I mean, I, I love them. They don't, they, they can scare me. It's, it's hard to get a good one. When they, they work, they're fun. I think it's because it feels so fake that it, it feels more fun than anything to go through them for me. But I love going with somebody that gets really scared. Unfortunately, they tend to suck up all the attention from the actors, that, the scared person. Which leaves very think- little for the people who are real desperate to be scared. I also have kind of a funny story of um, when I, in eighth grade, I was getting confirmed and I had to do community service work. 
to get my confirmation. And for some reason, my church allowed that to be working at a haunted house that <laughs> Halloween. Oh, yeah. Um, so I got to work at one in North Park in Pittsburgh, and um, they made me the the greeter. So I like stood at the door and I let people into the haunted house. And I wasn't really a character. I was like just dressed spooky, but like kind of telling people the rules of the haunted house. And the first night that I was working there, we all got called into a meeting and the person running it handed me specifically, but also everyone, a, a picture of a criminal who had just escaped from the Allegheny County Jail and was on the run, was wanted and loose and as people were entering the haunted house that night, I had to stop them, show them the picture, and then say, if you see this man, he's not part of the haunted house. For real. And try to convince <laughs> them in all seriousness that this wasn't a joke. It wasn't meant to scare them. <laughs> this was a wanted fugitive. And this was honestly before I feel like cell phones were super prominent. Like Most cell phones didn't have, I think, ready internet access if any, mine certainly didn't. So it wasn't even a time where you could like look to see if this was a joke or not in the moment. Wow. Not that to, is unbelievable. Not to be too personal, but offhand, how many haunted houses do you think you visited? Like in, if that's too personal a question, you don't have to answer it. It's a really personal question, and that's something that I only talk to my family about. <laughs> um, Tim, you shouldn't have asked that. How many? Maybe five or six. No... Perhaps a bit more than that. Well, I've been okay, to four do you or five. count Sleep No More as a haunted house? It's a, a, an immersive theater experience in New York, which I went to twice. You we'll know, say between maybe. five and ten. That's a high art haunted house. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just might see someone cleaning beakers and then walking and then looking through a desk for a while. And the, the <laughs> only thing that's scary is how much you've paid by the hour for that experience. <laughs> but sometimes you're walking through a spooky birch forest. Yeah, some of it was honestly terrifying when I did it. I ran downstairs with my sister. Everyone's wearing like these weird masks, and we went down a floor which is just like an abandoned graveyard with one candle lit in the room, and there were no actors in there. And I was like, "Well, this is the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life." And me and my sister were supposed to split up, but she like literally was holding onto my shirt and wouldn't let me. <laughs> Where did this happen? Some theater somewhere? It's a it's... McKittrick Hotel in New York. You know, we like tried a... to do that. Um, maybe this is not as well known. Bill and I wrote like a musical in college about vampires, etc. And we did try to make the Transylvania song. Like people were singing creepy music and they were actually walking out into the audience and climbing over people's chairs. Like... I may be most on the outs of the whole thrill-seeking of this trio discussing this, but I I mean, I get it enough to be like, it's effective to make people feel spooked. There's something there. We even tried mm-hmm. to induce that, although it was sort of instinctual. It wasn't like he sat back and, you know, but kind of, and it, there's also this doubt, like, are they going to stop? Are they going to... I, let me let me give you another quick story briefly. Just while we're in the t- subject of haunted houses, I have a friend who's um, he's kind of like a guy right out of the 1950s. Dan Brindle. He's a guy who uh, he forged his own wedding rings out of American coinage. He heated them up and was like putting them on a turn and hammering them. He runs a farm in Tennessee. He's just kind of this. Uh, not your average 21st century American citizen. He then turned his farm for a couple years into a haunted, like, hayride maze. Basically, he, he, he formed his own haunted house. And Dan is like this deeply rooted, like, homeschool guy that skipped college to work on the farm. So he's just not your expected haunted house designer. But he made it really good. I remember he described to me this one scene where towards the very end, after they've already been through some thrills, people have to actually crawl through this sort of small tunnel on their hands and knees. And then they kind of hit a barrier with their head. Like they actually, it's, it's in the dark and they, yeah, they, can't, they can't go any further and it's claustrophobic. And then the lights flash on and they're actually crawling on plexiglass and there's a guy underneath the plexiglass when Love the light that. flashes on to scare them. I mean, it was like a genius move. I was like, I'd be, you know, terrified because the person's right in your I'd face. Freak out they can sure. kind I'd of touch you through the glass, you know. 
But uh, again, dreamed up just by this guy named Dan. Well, I'll tell you what's on my bucket list big time. I really someday want to go to the South and go to a hell house, which is a haunted house run by evangelical churches that is designed to present horrifying scenes, mostly about some kind of sin that it then culminates in bringing you into a room after you've been absolutely terrified to try to be saved. Wow. And the whole idea is just so interesting to me and scary in a deep way. And I really, really want to go to one. I feel like I would be truly scared in that environment. Is that only around, is that Halloween time? Is that like, is that every weekend? I think that they are around, set up around Halloween time. Tim, I think that this is why the Catholic Church is falling behind in America. We need to, <laughs> I think the people of Philadelphia and your parish are ready for this. You, you put, you, you shown their sins and then baptized <laughs> right after. Throw them through the ringer. Are you in or out? <laughs> yes. Like, <laughs> and then you do it again next year because it probably yeah, doesn't just hold. To, yeah. Different, you know, you can throw in different sins the next year. Wow. I mean, that, that, that does happen at like youth retreats, not, not in that, but there's, there's sort of the dynamic of like, of teenagers will put on a pantomime play. It usually has some sort of song written by somebody similar to Evanescence (laughs) and they're sort of like mimicking pantomiming and then there's sort of some liberation, but then the pitch is like you all watching this have to give it all. Now it's not nearly as involved as a hell house. I've never heard of that. I heard of it when you said it two minutes ago. Wow. Yeah, if if you're looking for a deep dive later, I think uh, there's there's a documentary out there somewhere. I've definitely seen it. That's how I know it exists, but I couldn't I couldn't name what it is. And I think that experience was what watching this film was like. <laughs> It scared me into wanting to do good and to believe that children abide and that they will survive. Precisely. I don't know that we need to rank this one. I, th- I feel like this is going to be a night. This is a special October one-off. Do we have any final thoughts on this on this bad boy, Night of the Hunter? I think it's interesting that all of us actually grew up kind of near the Ohio River, right? Jonna from Pittsburgh. We were downriver. Uh-huh. This was slightly further downriver. It was good to connect with you all. I, I, I go back to my first phrase. It's like, I think if I'm watching a movie, I actually do think when he reaches out for Rachel, the orphanage lady, when he reaches for her hand and trusts her, that actually was a moment in cinema where I took pause and I was moved. And that makes it worth it for me. Me too. Um, yeah, I think like even like a 20-second scene is worth an hour and a half. But at the same time... I would not vote for this movie very highly at all. This is kind of a... I don't know. And if I don't know, that's not a good thing, right? Because I love movies. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, what do you... I don't know. Interesting. I, I can go next and give Jonna the last word here. Yeah, Whoa, I think that this film's worth it for the images that you see. I think there's some good villain work that really sets the scene for later films. And unfortunately, I don't think it holds up on its own quite the same way that some of the other inspirational ones. But this is one of the first, like, real American films we've seen, too. So I think we have a... Our radar is different than if we're watching something in Swedish or Italian. It's 90 minutes. There's too much child acting. But some good performances otherwise. And uh, I love Miss Cooper. She does great. Some beautiful cinematography. I would say I'm not typically a big fan of older movies, but as far as they go, this one was visually very watchable. I agree with what you both have really said, is that I really kind of enjoyed looking at it pretty much the entire time. The parts where it really suffered for me were, um, you know, the other things, plot, dialogue, (laughs) tone too much singing but my takeaway is perhaps i was so focused on the things that struck me as unusual and bad that i didn't take enough time to appreciate what was good 
So my real takeaway is going to be a personal one to maybe look for the good a little more often. And I think that's a New Year's resolution we can all adopt. (laughs) Except that it's Halloween. (laughs) Oh, I make resolutions every Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) To live a spookier life. Yes, under the blue moon, which is hitting this Halloween. A blue moon on Halloween, a second full moon in the month of October? Unheard of. Wait, I'm actually not playing dumb. I don't know the real term blue moon besides the beer that I used to like, but I don't anymore. Uh-huh. Um, it just means it's the second full moon in a month. Really? Um, but I, I guess if you look more into it, it's you know supposedly has like special powers because it is the second full moon. But at the very least, it's a it's a rare, very rare occurrence. You're like this Rachel character in the sense that you're you're like sitting us down in the room and educating us all the time. <laughs> I honestly have learned at least seven things that I had never heard of. <laughs> and Bill never does that for me. Bill's always like, here's how I feel. And it's like, I'm tired of that. Let's get some guests to educate us. Bill, had you heard of a hell house before this? No. Have you, did you know what a blue moon was besides an overly sweet... Overly popularized beer. I don't know if I could define it quite as precisely. Exactly. Yeah. It's a rare moon. Rare full moon. Was it? Because that's what they have, Once in a blue moon. Blue moon. I saw you standing alone. That would have been. That would have been a better villain song than. I agree. Uh, oh yes. In a it's minor one that I key. know, and that's why I like it better. Right off the bat. Well, I think it was a good discussion, even if it wasn't a good movie. You know what? And maybe we'll try and find a scary version of Everlasting Arms to finish the film to give people a sense of how haunting this is. All right. Well, thank you, Jonna, for joining us. Reminder, check out Mean Book Club. We went easy on this film, if anything, but watch them really tear into what, like The Secret and what are some of the what are some of the books that you've done? Sure, we've done Eat, Pray, Love. We've hit um, the TB12, Tom Brady's uh, self Oh, no. Now I'm going to listen. You have my attention. <laughs> you rip on Tom Brady. I don't Tom hate him, Brady. but I'd like to hear what you say. Okay. James Patterson. We, we, we hit all the greats. And, um, Man. D- you, you can't feel too bad about it because these are all people who've made so much money off of their books being bestsellers that we feel like hopefully we can have a little fun with the things we don't love about their books. And that's beautiful. I remember listening to one of your Danielle Steele episodes where you talk about like, how it's just such an awful book and she writes someone's full lifetime <laughs> and tries to squeeze it in. You know, the classic trope of like the best storytelling is just years and years of content. Not, not a day in the life, not a moment. That's not a story. You need decades. <laughs> yeah, just an account of facts and dates and names. Okay. <laughs> We have been the princes of cinema. Thank you guys again for joining us. As always, we miss you already. Nice. Nicely said. (laughs) And And it's true, too. We do miss them. 